Welcome back to the 70th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including Bernie Sanders calling out the DNC to ban the super PAC money during the primaries, a article talking about how there's really no fair solutions to this government spending problem that we're currently dealing with, and the House of Majority is now trying to cut funds to a certain part of the UN, and we'll see if it actually pans out. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. For those of you who have listened before, well, first off, for returning, thank you. But you probably heard me speak about getting big money out of politics. And once again, we have another example of how they make sure that their interests are accounted for with these PACs and super PACs. These political action committees are simply roundabout ways for donors with deep pockets to influence politicians, make sure their voice is heard, and make sure at the end of the day, they get what they want on their agenda. So how do we address this? Do we outright ban them? Do we limit them to the general election? Or do we limit them to primaries? And I'd love to hear your thoughts down below. And if you have an even more creative solution than the ones that I've put out, because I'm very small-minded, I'd love to hear what you have to think. All right, let's jump into our first article from Common Dreams. Bernie Sanders to DNC, ban super PAC money in Democratic primary races. So no one knows how much super PACs screw over populist politicians such as Bernie Sanders. You know, though he and I don't really agree and we're very apart, far apart on a number of issues, I really do feel for the guy. At the end of the day, the mainstream Democratic Party put a lot of money, or a lot of the mainstream donors put a lot of money behind Hillary Clinton in 2016, even though he was leading in the, uh, the primaries at first. And he really got screwed over. And while I don't think his bid in uh, 2020 was as strong as his 2016 bid, I do think that he was still screwed over by the super PACs who knew that the American people or at least they believed the American people wanted a more mainstream candidate. And it did work out. They got Joe Biden into the presidency. And it also got Bernie Sanders, his party, in control of the House, and with a 50-50 split in the Senate. So I don't necessarily think he would complain at the end of the day with that result. But if it's directly hindering him from achieving his goals of the presidency or maybe moving up to a different position that's a little bit stronger, maybe... Uh, the majority leader in the Senate, maybe. I'm not saying he actually wants that. But if they're impeding his way by funding his opponents in the primaries, you can understand why he's extremely pissed about this. Quote, ahead of the Democratic National Committee's annual winter meeting in Philadelphia, Senator Bernie Sanders on Tuesday called on the party to end super PAC spending in primary races saying the Democrats should take this event as an opportunity to show their commitment to protecting democracy. Twelve years after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, 
the Vermont Independent Senator wrote, the last election cycle illustrated how the, quote, disastrous decision is, quote, undermining American democracy as super PACs spent roughly $1.3 billion on campaigning, including more than $460 million spent by Democratic groups, end quote. And, but this, or that funding, it's really not finding its way towards progressive candidates. The people that would want to tax the billionaires are not getting the funding from these PACs. Rather, they're really going to the mainstream candidates who don't really want to disturb the status quo. And that makes sense. At the end of the day, these super PACs, they're not funding populist candidates. Candidates that are saying, we want the rich to pay their fair share. Or we want to make sure that corporations don't wield too much power in the American political system. And those kind of politicians get screwed over by these PACs. They just get outspent. Because at the end of the day, these PACs have an incentive to, one, keep their stranglehold. And stranglehold's a strong word. To keep their grip. And I, when I say that, I don't mean, oh, they're controlling everything. They have the strongest grip ever. What I mean is, even if they have a small amount of influence, maybe they get a extra piece of legislation passed here or there. Maybe they get an amendment struck down or a special provision written in. And even that small amount of influence can benefit them. So when these candidates come in and say, we want to make sure that these lobbyists, these big PACs, that they don't allow for these corporations, these billionaires, to influence policy, that scares them. So that's why these PACs are the perfect solution. They can just donate as much money as they want, practically tax-free, and these PACs can give basically as much money as they want to politicians. And they don't have to directly go to the politician and say, oh, well, you know, I'm giving you this money through this PAC. You better do what I want. But there's an implicit bargain there. There's kind of a wink and a nod. Oh, you're at this PAC meeting, Jeff Bezos. Oh, how nice to see you here. I had no idea that you were part of this PAC. Well, you know, I do believe in the democratic cause, and, you know, we really want to make sure that our workers' rights are insured, and they can just have an underhanded conversation where the message gets across, and then if the senator, the congressman, the other type of elected or appointed officials don't get the message, then they'll pull the funding the next time around. And if they get back into office, they'll realize, okay, this PAC was not okay with this certain situation. There doesn't have to be an outright collusion. There doesn't have to be an outright conversation. It could be very under the table. And that's why these PACs are sly. I mean, I don't necessarily like them. But this isn't just an issue for progressives. There are also PACs that have spent millions against more populist Republicans as well. And it makes sense. Why would you want someone who is speaking for the people to come in and ruin the system that you and your elite friends have spent so much time and especially money developing and creating. Quote, when we talk about billionaires buying elections, this is exactly what we're talking about, wrote Sanders, who caucuses with Senate Democrats. In 2010, Citizens United ruling allowed corporations and special interest groups to create super PACs, which can accept unlimited donations and spend unlimited money on campaigns. The ruling has been condemned for years by Democratic lawmakers, including Rep. Adam Schiff, who earlier this month introduced legislation to overturn Citizens United. The party could make clear that its opposition to the corporate takeover of campaigning 
by banning super PAC spending in its primaries, said Sanders, noting that the issue was not permitted to come up for a vote la- at last year's DNC meeting when he proposed it there, end quote. And I do think there, there's something to be said, and I know I've come down hard on super PACs. There is something to be said about businesses, especially having a interest in how the country that they operate within is run. But giving them a an out, an all-out spending spree, essentially, to donate as much money or as much money as they want or as much money as they're able to to these PACs is outrageous. Maybe if there's a cap, just like there's a cap for individuals, maybe you have a cap for the company. If there are 500 employees, then you say for each employee, you're able to donate 1000 or $2,000 to whatever candidate you want to win. So then at least it's representative of how many people are working for that company. Or maybe you do market share. If you have a certain percentage of the market share, then you get a certain amount of money that you can give or a certain amount of profits can go to it. There's probably a fair way to divide it up so that the larger companies do get a little bit more say in how things are being operated, at least not say in the way that they can tell politicians what to do, but where they can fund people who will pursue things that they think will be for the benefit of them. And I think this is essential because, like I said, these businesses operate in this country and they employ lots of people. And even if they don't employ a lot of people, they employ people. They add to the gross domestic product of a country. So they are essential to how the country thrives how people get lifted up out of bad situations by giving them wages, by giving them opportunities to move up. And I think that there is a case there. But having it basically have no cap, meaning that all the big companies can outrageously spend while only small companies can only spend a little bit because they don't have the same capital, that does cause some problems in my mind. One thing of note, though, is Sanders is only talking about primaries, not the general which is interesting. I mean, as a politician, it makes sense. And especially in his political situation, where the DNC very often funds more mainstream candidates, of course he doesn't want PACs involved because he doesn't want his mainstream opponents to win the nomination in the primary. But he doesn't want the PAC money to go away when he gets to the national stage because if he's the candidate for the Democrats, he's a progressive meaning he's going to have to fight a little bit harder because a lot of people, a lot of of middle-of-the-road Americans don't like the term progressive. And even if they're okay with it, it doesn't mean they're okay with all of his policies. The younger generations most definitely are, but some older generations are not. So, of course, he would want that super PAC money. He'd be like, oh, yeah, no, we can't have it in the primaries. But, no, we can't. I can't even do a good Bernie. How How do you even do a good Bernie? Hold on, give me one second. We have to tax the millionaires in the billionaire. Nope, that is god-awful. If you've made it this far into the podcast, I, normally I would try to go back and maybe not include that. I'm going to leave that in there because that is extremely cringy. But just imagine Bernie Sanders saying, no, 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 we, we don't want the money in the primaries because it's going to stop me from winning the primaries, but, but I do want it in the general election because it will help me win the general election. And I do agree with him, but it feels like it's not on premise alone that he's saying get rid of these packs. It doesn't feel like he's standing up for values. He's just trying to make it easier for 
him to get the nomination when it comes to the next presidential election, maybe. That's just my opinion. And I'm sorry for my very cringy Bernie Sanders rendition. Like I said, if you made it this far, obviously you either know me or you've been listening. Or if you're brand new, uh, I promise you I'm not normally this weird, but sometimes it happens. It just is how it is. All right. Our next story comes from FEE Stories. Why there is no fair solution out of the federal government spending quagmire. So I have to start this article with a question. Is there a fair way to go about reforming Social Security, Medicare, and the tons and tons of other spending programs that are bound to fail in the not-so-far future? I mean, the author would argue, no, there's not a fair way to do it. And at first, I didn't have a good answer, but the author did convince me. And I think that at the end of the day, this is a serious conversation we need to have, and we need to be realistic about how we can come out the other side with the least amount of damage, but understanding that there, there probably will be damage. Quote, the mere possibility of that has emerged of those who fear that a change from the status quo might give them less, even though the huge financial holes involved cannot be sustained for long meaning that the doing nothing for now guarantees a worse deal for many soon. So such opponents are gearing up to prevent any move towards improving fiscal responsibility and sustainability that might involve reducing anyone's benefits now or in the future by asserting that it would be unfair. Unfortunately, however, if we rule out all options that might be unfair, reduce a uh, reduction of benefits for current or future beneficiaries, we must be unfair to others. The reason is that the federal government has promised trillions of dollars more in benefits than taxes to fund them through Social Security, and even more so for Medicare. And those overpromises leave no fair way out, end quote. So basically, I'll give a quick summary and then of the author's points, and we can dive into each one a little bit separately separately. So either we hurt people currently on benefits or we hurt people who have bought into the system and will be receiving benefits in the future. Wait, wait, hold on. I know, I know, I know. Why don't we just increase taxes? Well, the author would actually say that's really not fair to the many taxpayers responsible for the screw-ups of the previous politicians who didn't fix these terrible systems in the first place. How is that fair that current taxpayers have to pay for the mistakes of previous lawmakers? It doesn't necessarily seem fair, and that's what the author would argue. And you may be asking, does the author think there's any solution that would work? I mean, he does flirt with the idea of privatization of the benefit programs, but points out that there are those that have paid into Social Security their whole lives who could be unfairly hurt by this practice. Quote, what about some sort of privatization that could potentially increase the rate of return earned on retirement savings relative to what Social Security offers, improving the system from this point in time forward? However, such a move cannot magically eliminate its current multi-trillion dollar unfunded liabilities. 
and if future benefits are to be more closely based on private contributions than the current system, as privatization would require, treating those savers more fairly would unfairly take funds now used to subsidize the retirement of current workers, even though they have paid for a far, far less in taxes than they will receive in benefits under the current structure, end quote. So yeah, this, this guy is a real negative Nelson, is how I would put it. But his point is a little bit larger in nature. Someone is going to get screwed. Either way, the retiree, the taxpayer, the government, the politicians, he is saying that we cannot use the reasoning that something will be unfair to address this issue or to, more accurately, not address this issue. Someone has to bite the bullet, and people need to realize that. And that's his larger point. At the end of the day, someone's going to get hurt. Someone is not going to get what they want out of this deal. And the author is saying, well, the politicians, they can't have that, essentially. Politicians cannot have this issue on the table and then screw over some of their potential voters and then go back home to their districts and say, oh, well, uh, we fixed the Social Security system but you're going to get taxed a little bit more. Or, oh, we fixed the Social Security system, but you're actually going to get less money than you paid in through taxes. So he's saying at the end of the day, there's no positive incentive to actually fix these programs in a meaningful way. There is a positive incentive to just spend more money, to just create another trust fund, to take out more debt and create a separate trust fund or add to the current one in order to sure up these benefits for future people. But then that screws it over the taxpayer at the end of the day. But it's more politically solvent. And when I say it screws over the taxpayer at the end of the day, if they're just printing money, they're just taking out more money in loans in order to fund these trust funds, that's going to hurt the average consumer, the average taxpayer through inflation. So you may not be getting taxed more in order to pay for these programs directly through social security tax, income tax, anything of that nature. But at the end of the day, your U.S. dollar is worth less. And that is a way of taxation. It's just taxation through devaluing of the money. So I think we need to realize as a society that if we really believe social security and Medicare are a good thing, and I think a lot of people do, they realize it is a good thing, then we have to be willing to sacrifice something. And in the modern culture of politics, it's not, oh, yes, I have to give up something. We have to sacrifice something in order to get what I want. There has to be a fair deal. There has to be a trade of some kind. It's, no, no, I want what I want, and you will give me what I want, or else I'm voting you out of office. Or you will give me what I want because I'm entitled to it. That's the mentality that is pervasive. And politicians feel it. Politicians understand that they've been giving things away for so long. They've been making so many promises that if they don't come and actually fulfill those promises, people are not going to put up with it because they, for some reason, people believe that the government, not everybody, but a majority of people, even if they don't consciously believe it, there's still somewhere deep down that they believe they deserve something from the government. So, at the end of the day, these politicians, they feel like they're forced into a place where it's, okay, nope, I'm going to get voted out, and I need to be here in order to help my constituents. I need to be here in order to represent the people of Arizona in Congress and make sure that 
their voice is heard. So I'm going to fold on this, and I'm going to make sure that my constituents get these benefits, even if it means we're going to have to print a whole bunch of money and make the U.S. dollar a little bit weaker. And I think that's a very dangerous mentality, and it's one that modern politicians all too easily fall on. And to be clear, it's not just a politician's issue. It's not just their fault. Like I said, it comes back to Americans or a certain segment of the population believing they're entitled to something and not realizing that in order to be part of the society, in order to get something good out of certain policies, out of certain things that we want, you kind of have to give something up. And that's the whole point of Social Security. You give up a little bit of your social, your tax, sorry, you give up a little bit of your paycheck through Social Security tax. It goes into a fund that doesn't just pay for your retirement, but it pays for other people's retirement. And people understood that. People bought into that system. But now it's, oh, no, no, I just deserve it because I deserve it. And that's not the mentality that is sustainable. It's not a mentality that's sustainable. And it's something that we need to address going forward. And I think there's a lot of smart people out there who definitely agree. They just don't realize how much they're asking of the government or they don't necessarily care how much they're asking of the government because they need those benefits. They can't even think of the terms of, oh, I deserve it. It's no, I need it. So this is why this is such a hotly debated issue. And this is why politicians never get anything solved on this one. But I've been ranting a little bit too long on this one. I'm sorry. Let's jump to our last article. This one comes from National Review. GOP House Majority Eyes Cuts to UN Funding. Quote, the House Republican who chairs a powerful appropriations subcommittee on foreign aid said that he would seek to cut Washington's funding to the UN Human Rights Council. Quote, what's the role of the Human Rights Council? To pursue and to promote human rights. Yet... They have among the world's worst abusers, end quote. Representative Mario Diaz-Barnot told Roll Call in an interview, quote, it would be funny if for the fact that it weren't so dangerous, and again, that we're spending so much money on that, end quote. And, and he's right, of course. China, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and recently, well, a year ago, Russia, all were members of this council in the U.N., And all of them don't necessarily have the best track record when it comes to human rights. So why fund it? At the end of the day, if this Human Rights Council is to be taken seriously, why would we fund it if the some of the largest human rights abusers on the planet, China with the Uyghurs, Sudan with its... Uh, genocide or attempted genocide of the South Sudanese population. I'm sorry that I don't know the ethnical ethic, uh, sorry, ethnic groups by name. I forgot them. I'm extremely sorry. Saudi Arabia with suppression of women and what if you think about the Washington Post journalist who was murdered in Turkey and then you think of Russia with their war crimes, some would argue, in Ukraine. All of these countries do not have great human rights track records. And I'm sure if you went through a lot of the members, that would be the case. Even some people would argue the United States with Gitmo, who is on the council. So none of them are perfect, and I understand that. 
But these are some of the worst abusers. I mean, think of the Chinese and the suppression of the Uyghur population. That's an entire ethnic group put in concentration, put in camps, re-education camps is the correct way to say it, at least by the Chinese propaganda. They're put in these camps to be taught the value of being Chinese rather than their Muslim upbringing. And that's extremely outrageous. So I totally understand where Diaz Barlot is coming from when he says, no, 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 why would we fund them? Why would we give money to a council that obviously isn't taking the issues seriously? And it has at least one done one right thing recently when it kicked Russia off for its abuses in Ukraine. But its critics say it is simply a council focused on criticizing Israel's treatment of Palestine, while it says nothing about the Uyghurs in China. So during the Trump administration, funding was withdrawn from the council. But when Biden came back into office, he attempted to rebuild the burnt bridges. Quote, early in President Biden's term, however, the new administration reversed these policies and paid back assessment funds that Trump's team withheld. Offices such as the Special Repertoire for Unilateral Coercive Measures, which receives much of its funding from Russia and China and gets a nominal portion of its budget from the OHCHR. The Council's 2023 budget is $143 trillion million, and the U.S. is the U.N.'s largest contributor, funding 22% of the organization's annual budget. End quote. And don't get me wrong, there is an argument to be made that not participating in these councils in the UN leaves room for China, Russia, Iran, etc., all these nations that are politically or geopolitically opposed to us, to grow their influence on the UN without Americans pushing back. And that was the big mistake that Russia made right before the Korean War. On the Security Council, rather than voting no, they just abstained from the vote. And all the other members, Britain, France, China, and the U.S. at the time, voted to support South Korea with U.N. forces. Even though the Soviets were opposed to it, they abstained from the vote. And then, at the end of the day, since they did that, there was still a majority. There were still four yeses, so they sent in the... UN forces into South Korea. And ever since then, so the Soviet Union has never abstained from a vote, or I, I guess at this point it's Russia, has never abstained from a vote. They will just outright say no, because there is a lot of political influence there at the UN. Whether we like it or not, it is the reality of our situation. You know, like, I don't love the idea of the UN. Uh, a whole bunch of the world bureaucrats imposing their rules in, on nations and slowly chipping away at their sovereignty. But it is the reality. It exists. And it can be influential. And we are a part of it. And there are a lot of nations that are a part of it. Almost every nation in the world is a part of it. So we need to keep some presence there. It's a realist view. Whether you think it's as important as sovereign nations, I don't necessarily think it is. But at the end of the day, it's been in place for, let's do the math here, 70 plus years. It has different procedures. It has different sanction tactics. It has different proposals. It has the international court. 
it has all these different systems in place that can be influential, even if they're not as influential as what a nation by itself could do. So to step away from it would be ignorant. It's not that it's necessarily, if you fund it, you think it's the most important thing ever, and you might just want to protest it. But at the end of the day, you have to realize the reality is there is political control. There is political power there. And if you step out and you step away, then you allow other countries who may not have the same agenda as us to worm their way in and maybe sway some votes from one side to the other and build relationships with other nations that we may want to keep allied with us. So I think the reality of the situation is we have to have a presence at the UN. Now, do I think that strategically pulling away a little bit of money from one council to another to send a message? Maybe that makes sense. And then we keep a more broad presence in order to ensure that our voice is still heard at the UN. I think that's an interesting tactic. But the real thing is I I really do highly doubt that Diaz-Berlot will be able to get this through the Appropriations Committee. At the end of the day, I think that it's very noble, or at least what he's doing is interesting. He's trying to call attention to this issue, but he's just trying to create buzz. He's just trying to create name recognition for the next time that he goes for maybe the Senate, maybe he goes for a governorship in his home state, maybe he goes for the presidency one day. He's just trying to create buzz around his name and try to hype up certain people who may agree with him. So I wouldn't take this too seriously, but I wanted to have a discussion about it because I don't normally, or at least I haven't normally talked about the UN, and I think it is something that is important, and like I said, it's a reality of the world we live in. It's a reality of our state as a nation, that it plays some role. And I think I want to talk about it, and I think it's important. So thanks for listening all the way till this point. And if you made it till this point, you might as well stay for the daily delight so we can brighten your day a little bit. This one comes from the Animal Rescue Site. Giant dog watches over dozens of tiny ducklings. So dogs have been the guardians of everything, from humans to flocks of sheep, and it's in their genes at this point. And the story, this story, is another great example. Quote, Doug is a giant pooch with a heart of gold. Despite him being way more than triple the size of the ducklings, he's got nothing but love for them. And the ducklings feel so safe with him as well. End quote. I guess everyone needs a babysitter. This one just happens to be of a totally different species. And like they said, about three times the size. I would say more like 10 times the size of some of these ducklings, but that's just my opinion. Quote, having a dog around is like getting everything all in one furry package. For a large colony of 200 ducklings, they just got the most loyal and caring babysitter ever. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos of Doug and the ducklings or any of the cute videos, or if you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there into the description is the links to the podcast on Spotify, Podvine, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast. I'm trying to get it on a few different places, but that's where it's available for now. So if you want to listen there, download it on a car drive rather than having to play a YouTube video that takes a little bit more data, that's where you'll find it. And also down there is the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I post a direct link to the videos on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So you don't have to go searching through YouTube. It can just show up in your Twitter feed. But with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.